This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer. Serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at TidewaterAC.com. Colonel Charles Frederick Fisher was dead before he hit the ground on July 21, 1861, at the First Battle of Bull Run in Virginia. As leader of the 6th North Carolina Regiment, Fisher had led his men into one of the first major battles of the Civil War, but he wouldn't make it out the other side. In the thick of the action, he took a bullet to the head becoming the first North Carolina field officer to die in the war. But it's not Fisher's abbreviated service to the Confederate cause that has immortalized him in history. Rather, it's his name that is most commonly spoken of in connection with the war between the states, even though it's for something that he had nothing to do with. Fisher was born the day after Christmas, 1816, in Salisbury, North Carolina. His grandfather was an officer in the Revolutionary War, and his father was a career politician. Fisher would become a journalist, follow in his father's footsteps as an ardent voice in politics, and was eventually elected a state senator for Rowan County. His clout and prominence also garnered him multiple terms as president of the North Carolina Railroad. But like so many in the South, the opening salvo of the Civil War saw Fisher sign up for the Confederacy, a decision that would prove fatal in just a few short months. When he was struck down at Bull Run, which is also known to Confederate soldiers as the First Battle of Manassas, Fisher almost immediately became a hero for the Southern cause. His name was trumpeted as a martyr and it is said that his men even assembled a marker where his body fell. Some accounts claim the fatal bullet that claimed his life was actually from friendly fire, or at the very least, came in a hail of confusion as Union and Confederate forces, still new to the ways of battle, converged on either side of Fisher's regiment. Regardless of who pulled the trigger, Colonel Fisher had only seen a small taste of the brutal war to come. And he would be long gone before his name became a vital part of the Confederacy's last stand, less than four years later. If you haven't figured it out by now, Colonel Charles Fisher is the namesake of Fort Fisher, the vitally important stronghold that protected Wilmington from a Union invasion for much of the Civil War. It was named for Fisher not because he had deep roots in Wilmington, but because his friend, S.L. Fremont, had taken command of North Carolina's coastal defenses, and he wanted to memorialize the man who many saw as an embodiment of the sacrifice that so many others would soon make. What would transpire at Fort Fisher in the years to come from the construction of the massive fortress to a defining battle for the entire war, had nothing to do with Colonel Fisher. But its legacy and its consequential defeat have been forever branded with his name. This is Cape Fear Unearthed, the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and mysterious figures of southeastern North Carolina. As always, I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter with the Star News here in Wilmington. This week on the show, we're finally digging deep into one of the Cape Fear's defining stories and one of its most important landmarks, Fort Fisher. As I previously have said on the show, I held on to this story so I could recount its significance at a time that it could really resonate with listeners. And that time has come. 
on January 18th and 19th, 2020, which is this month if you're listening to the show when it comes out, the historic site that now encompasses the fort is holding a massive 155th anniversary commemoration and reenactment of the fateful battle that brought an end to its dominance. You'll hear more about that event later. For now, I want to start out by telling you how Fort Fisher came to be. Who actually built the fort that would help revolutionize how wartime fortresses were constructed? What was it like to spend your service protecting the region from a perch on its earthen mounds? And how did a single coastal fort become the most important battleground for the Confederacy in North Carolina? As always, I'll share with you the story as it has been passed down through history and told through legend, and then I'll bring in someone from the community with knowledge of our tale to continue the discussion and explore whether or not history can be trusted. And this week's guest is John Mosley, Assistant Manager and Education Director for Fort Fisher State Historic Site. So sit back and settle in for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed, as we recount the rise and fall of the Confederacy's coastal stronghold at Fort Fisher. In August 1864, the Confederate Army under the leadership of General Robert E. Lee faced a troubling reality. With the capture of Mobile, Alabama by Union forces, the Confederacy only had one major seaport left in its arsenal. Situated on a sliver of land about 20 miles from the Atlantic Ocean, Fort Fisher was built to be a vigilant guard dog, protecting the New Inlet entrance into the Cape Fear River. New Inlet had been formed by a vicious hurricane in 1761 and provided a much more desirable passage to Wilmington, as opposed to the dangerous shoals that awaited anyone who traveled through the old inlet near Baldhead Island. Laced with earthen mounds, powerful batteries, and a mighty stock of artillery, Fort Fisher was a beast, one that laid in wait until it was called to action. Behind it sat Wilmington, a city that became known as the lifeline of the Confederacy because southern forces relied on the supplies that were funneled into its borders through a network of routes. The most prominent of those was the Wilmington-Weldon Railroad Line, which was the longest in the world when it was completed in 1840. The South was flush with agricultural resources going into the war, but it was no match for the industrial manufacturing in the North, which gave the Union the upper hand especially when it came to weapons. Something the Confederacy had to counterbalance through means of supply runs and international trading. Not only was Fort Fisher designed to protect Wilmington, it also had to provide assistance for the blockade runners making the dicey trips through the Union blockade set up off the coast of North Carolina by President Abraham Lincoln at the start of the war. Some of the Confederacy's biggest benefactors were actually investors from Great Britain and other countries in Europe who couldn't pass up the lucrative trading deals despite most countries vowing neutrality in the war. Their resources were essential to the cause, and getting them through the blockade and to places like Wilmington was of vital importance to the Confederacy. And the runners were good at their job. That's why, by late 1864, northern forces knew if they were to win the war, they must deliver a decisive blow on Fort Fisher to ensure that they cut off the Confederacy's supply line at the source. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. The first efforts to provide cover for Wilmington began with the construction of rudimentary artillery emplacements near New Inlet in April 1861. That September, 
a newspaper report announced that the Confederate War Department had decided to rename the growing fort on Federal Point in honor of Colonel Charles Fisher. Still in its infancy, the fort was a meager assortment of sand mounds with barely enough artillery power to defend its men, let alone the entire river gateway to Wilmington. But in 1862, Colonel William Lamb took over control of the small garrison stationed at the fort and transformed it into the cornerstone of the Confederacy's seacoast defensive strategy. Lamb wasted no time getting to work designing an intricate fort that took its influences from the Malakoff Tower, a fort built in Russia during the Crimean War a decade earlier. General William H.C. Whiting supervised the implementation of Lamb's design, which, from a bird's-eye perspective, looked like a seven- or L-shaped bastion. The long end of the fort was formed by a mile of sturdy bomb-proof batteries, known as the Seaface. And the shorter side of land-facing batteries extended half a mile on their own. According to historian Rod Gragg, the fort was equipped with more than 40 pieces of heavy artillery, and even if soldiers managed to make it past the long-range artillery to plant their feet on land, they would have to brave a maze of landmines that could be detonated remotely by an early electrical system. Under Whiting's guidance, a thousand men were said to be working on the construction of the fort at one time, more than half of which were black men, both freed and enslaved, although more recent research suggests that that number could be higher. We're going to talk further about African American and Native American involvement in the building of Fort Fisher a little later with our guest. But within less than a year, Lamb, Whiting, and these men had completed an imposing and what is said to have been a visually striking fortress on an unassuming strip of land, perfectly positioned to defend the ocean on one side and the river on the other. Joined in a network with other forts along the Cape Fear River, like Forts Anderson and Caswell, the path to Wilmington would not be an easy one for the Union, should they try to make a play for the port. Due to its incredible show of might, Fort Fisher, which would become the largest coastal defense in the entire Confederacy, was given a number of nicknames, including the Confederate Goliath and Gibraltar of the South. In November 1863, Confederate President Jefferson Davis even toured the fort on a trip to Wilmington and is said to have left impressed by its scale and comforted by its strength. For the pageantry, every gun in placement was manned and a 21-gun salute was fired in the Confederate President's honor. Local historian Chris E. Fonville Jr., wrote that the Union initially had little interest in attacking Wilmington, as it was upriver and didn't seem to have much strategic value. This blind spot actually allowed the Confederate blockade runners and train shipments to flood Wilmington and Fort Fisher with supplies and artillery, only further fortifying these locations for the fight to come. However, such a reputation would earn Fort Fisher a target as the war stretched on, especially as desperation grew to a fever pitch on both sides. Lincoln's forces would eventually want to subdue Fort Fisher so badly that they made not one, but two attempts to capture it. Even as more Union commanders got on board with a plan to attack Wilmington, Federal Commander Ulysses S. Grant wasn't convinced that pulling troops from the stagnant Battle of Petersburg, where both sides had dug their heels in for months, was the wisest move in late 1864. But he was convinced that cutting off Wilmington's supply line to the Confederacy could help the larger cause. 
by December, Grant sent Rear Admiral David Porter to take a stab at seizing Fort Fisher. According to Fonville, Porter brought with him 64 warships, packing a whopping total of 627 cannons and a plan to relentlessly bear down on the earthen mounds at Fort Fisher. They began their attack on Christmas Eve 1864 and blasted the fort with more than 20,000 shells through Christmas Day, the largest naval bombardment of the war. As you can imagine, it was not a joyous Christmas morning. As the blasts and vibrations from the assault continued through the day and could be heard and felt as far as Wilmington upriver. However, it still wasn't enough to bust through the naturally sourced fortifications. General Benjamin Butler even tried to land a ground assault on the fort during the attack, but found the bombardment had done nothing to open a path through the batteries, causing him to abort the mission. The Union retreated, but not for long. Ahead of that first battle, General Whiting, who had famously been defiant of his superior officers, including Confederate President Davis, was demoted as commander of the District of the Cape Fear, in favor of the more controversial General Braxton Bragg. You can learn more about Whiting's life and devotion to Fort Fisher in our special Halloween episode called The Ghost of the General. Taking command away from Whiting, though, would prove to be a fatal error in judgment on Davis's part. At this point, despite being pushed back by the defensive forces at Fort Fisher, Grant was more resolute than ever to secure Wilmington. Primarily, he felt that it could help further solidify the impending Carolinas campaign, which was a northern charge led by General William Tecumseh Sherman. So, with Porter's fleet at the ready, Grant also enlisted General Alfred Terry's Army Corps, effectively creating a 9,600-man battering ram to hit Fort Fisher a second time. The Union Navy and Army arrived off Fort Fisher after dark on January 12, 1865, and launched their assault the following morning. Porter once again hammered the Seaface artillery line while Terry's men made their way to shore. Two days later, the men on foot locked horns with Confederate forces in a hand-to-hand duel atop the fort's mounds. Despite his demotion, General Whiting returned to fight alongside the men in the fort that he had helped build, as did Colonel William Lamb. According to some reports, the bloody, close-quarters affair stretched on for five hours. It only came to an end around 10 p.m. on January 15th when the Confederate troops realized that they were outmatched. With Whiting and Lamb both injured in battle, the beaten-down Fort Fisher was surrendered to the Union that night. Despite a brutal final send-off that required the Union and Confederate troops to look each other dead in the eyes as they went in for the kill, the real villain for some of the Confederates was General Bragg. Even after repeated pleas from Whiting and Lamb, He never sent reinforcement troops to assist the defense of the fort, even though he had stationed them just a few miles across the river at Sugarloaf, which is now part of Carolina Beach State Park. Some even say that the outcome of the battle could have been different if Bragg had responded to the call. Earlier in the war, as Wilmington's importance came into view, It's said that General Lee told a commander that if Wilmington fell, he would not be able to supply the Army of the Confederacy. And he was right. By February 22nd, Union forces had captured Wilmington and shut off all supplies to the Confederacy. Less than two months later, the war was over. 
despite its somewhat unassuming beginning, Fort Fisher had quickly grown into one of the Confederacy's most important means of survival. Losing Wilmington was unimpeachably a nail in the coffin of the Southern cause, and the fall of Fort Fisher was North Carolina's first swing of the hammer. Fort Fisher would go on to live another life in World War II, but that's a story for another day. And yet, its role as the most important battlefront of the Civil War in North Carolina will always be its enduring legacy. Only a few of the earthen mounds have survived coastal erosion, war training, and a century and a half of beach tourism. But the remnants of Fort Fisher remain, and so too do the scars of the past, which, like the war itself, are still etched in the earth and in the Cape Fear's history. Joining me now to talk further about the vast story of Fort Fisher is John Mosley, the Assistant Manager and Education Director for the Fort Fisher State Historic Site here in our area. Thank you so much for being here, John. Well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, and I'm, I'm so excited to talk about this topic because um, it's one that obviously so many of the stories that we've told on the show kind of you know, bump up against, you know, yeah. Fort Fisher, such a, a, a kind of a, a mammoth presence in this area, especially in its historic story. And so it's, it's really interesting to have started researching it and, and getting to know it. And there's just so much to Fort Fisher um, over there, the years. There really is. And, and when the movie Lincoln came out, uh, we had one of the actors who was in the movie come down, not one of the big name stars, but he came down because his, his big part of the movie was reading the script that said, you know, Fort Fisher is taken. He had no idea what he was talking about. So he actually came down to visit the fort, and we gave him a tour and showed him everything. He was amazed at what the fort became and what it meant to this area, what it meant to the national history. That's that's amazing, and also, good job for him for doing the research into the to, to his, his work. Unfortunately, it was after the movie, but oh, but it was okay, still well. but it was still pretty unique that he would try to go to that length to find out what was he doing. At least it stuck with him. <laughs> yes, it did. Um, and it's a story that sticks with a lot of people. I think you know one thing that I learned, and I started off our episode with this. Um, I didn't know the man for whom the fort was named, uh, Colonel Charles Fisher. Yes, we share a hometown, Salisbury, North Carolina, and I just and, thought and that was he fascinating. Was, he was pretty important, and that was. One of the things that most people don't realize, it was, I don't want to say an honor because you had to be dead, but it was an honor to have an, a fort named after yeah. you. And that was one of the things that they did. Um, Fisher is killed at the first battle of Manassas in July 61, attacking um, field guns, which they ended up capture. He was a state senator, chairman of the North Carolina Railroad, um, led the funeral procession for uh, Governor Ellis when he passed away unexpectedly in 1861. So he was a very big uh, name in North Carolina. So when he's killed, uh, it, it makes the newspapers in Richmond and in North Carolina uh, to, to actually explain how he had passed away and how he had been killed. Absolutely. And uh, I just found that to be a, a whole fascinating part of the story that really doesn't even happen at Fort Fisher is just where it gets its name. And it's just another kind of link to something else that happened during the war. It is. And, you know, Fort Fisher is quite unique in that all the batteries that were at the fort had had a specific name. Um, when the fort has actually started construction in April of 1861, um, it's uh, Major Bowles who goes down there to actually start. And so the first battery is named for him. So Battery Bowles is the very first battery that is down there at Fort Fisher, um, and it's right near to the sea face. You have five separate different batteries that are actually built, all named for uh, the commanders of the gun crews that were there. That is an odd honor, but you know, during wartime, I imagine it was a huge honor. You it know? was, and and what you find is that uh, as they're building all these separate little uh, uh, areas to to create these uh, cannons. The commanders are named for the batteries, but they're not in charge of the whole entire fort. It's not really going to be until July 4th, 1862, that you actually have a single unified command, which is when uh, Colonel Lamb shows up and he takes command of these five, five just separate batteries and 
starts really trying to develop a plan to make this uh, an impressive uh, fortification. Well, and one thing that I, you know, I even struggle a little bit with when I'm thinking about Fort Fisher and talking about Fort Fisher is there's just not much of it left. So you have to, when you're out there, you have to imagine what you are seeing being just so much more widespread and so much more kind of overwhelming because it needed to be, it needed to be a fort. And it did. And you know, that's one of the things you're exactly right. Uh, There are a lot of people who come out and like, where's the fort? They're expecting a brick. They're expecting a wooden fort and it's not there. Um, When you think of fortification, you think of these massive brick fortifications. Uh, But by 1860, they're, they're a thing of the past. Nobody in their right mind is wanting to build brick fortifications. They understand that because of the technology of uh, the cannons of the day that a brick fort is not going to do anything. So they're starting to build them out of sand. Um, It's amazing when you walk out the back door of our visitor center that when you see the white roofed building of the North Carolina Aquarium, that's about where the southern terminus of the fortification is. That's about three quarters of a mile away. Um, when you kind of visualize it in that manner, you kind of get an understanding of how massive this fort actually was. Yeah. I mean, it stretched from the river to the ocean on the land face and then all the way three quarters of a mile. So it's, it was meant to be as psychologically as impressive as possible. So it was going to take a lot of effort to capture it. Absolutely. And it did. I mean, it took two battles. Very much. <laughs> um, so one thing that I, I want to talk about specifically before we get into the, you know, the construction of the fort is why was that location, you know, so important and that location picked or really kind of built out to be the stronghold for this? Well, this site had been known by even by the federal government and by the local population as needing some kind of protection. Uh, New Inlet, which Fort Fisher would eventually protect, uh, was created by a hurricane, a slow-moving hurricane that hit in September 8, 1761, um, and it allowed ships to come in and out of the Cape Fear River at a new inlet. And so that was a major conundrum for anybody who was trying to guard the Wilmington approaches. So you had Caswell, a brick fortification down at the old inlet, well, you had to protect the new inlet, too. So the federal government from about 1794 on knew that they had to raise money and put a fortification of some type there. Uh, during the War of 1812, there was a battery that was there to protect New Inlet. Um, and then it just kind of went away until uh, April of 1861. The people of this area knew that that had to be protected. Um, and so they immediately rushed troops down there to start building these separate batteries. Um, it was the importance of that new inlet um, that allowed people to come in or these ships to come in from Europe um, that really made the difference as to why Fort Fisher was so vital to the defenses of the Cape Fear River. Um, without the protection of Fisher, um, a lot of these ships wouldn't be able to make it all the way around um, down south to around frying pan shoals and into the old inlet. Um, because there were two inlets, the United States Navy was always struggling to effectively blockade the port of Wilmington. But July of 1863, Wilmington's the only port available to the Confederacy to bring in goods. Um, and that just means it's even more important. That doubles efforts to make sure that Fort Fisher is as strong as possible. Which is crazy to me why more people don't know about it, considering it seemed to be, you know, if you look back now, the Confederacy relied so heavily on Fort Fisher there in the final years of the war um, and in Wilmington. And so it's a, it's very interesting. It it is kind of a unique story. And the only thing I could probably say as to why, you know, Fort Fisher doesn't have the same connection to the community anymore is that um, I guess, I guess our population is um, more diversified. Now we have people coming from all over the country living here. And so most of them aren't familiar with the heritage in this area, you know, you've got heritage going back all the way, you know, from the original uh, Native Americans moving into this area to European discovery, the first attempt to settle this area, um, and then the creation of Brunswick and town and then Wilmington. And so there's, so there's a lot of history that really just happens in this one completely small area. Um, and if you're not familiar with what you're looking into, you, you won't know, you can yeah. walk right past it without knowing. You know, you you say that that's actually a really good encapsulation of this entire show that I'm doing, because (laughs) last week we talked about the uh, Cape Fear Indians and we talked about kind of their role. um, And, you know, that kind of leads in pretty well to 
you know, this next question of over the years, you guys have only dug deeper into the story of Fort Fisher yourself. I mean, you guys are at Fort Fisher, but you're still learning things about Fort Fisher. Oh, oh yes. I mean, I imagine every day. We, we are tr- generally, we, we, I don't want to say we have a specialty, but all of us like some part of the Fort Fisher story that we've been really researching. The staff at the fort has really been trying to tell all a complete story of the fortification. Mm-hmm. When the museum was first built during the centennial, it was there to tell a military history story. Um, most people are more interested in the social history of you know what was going on around here. So over the years, we found more stories detailing women's history, uh, African-American history, Native American history, and all of this is starting to come together with the intended uh, creation of our new museum. So we'll have more store, more space to tell a more complete story of the fortification. Uh, like many things, once you start the research, it starts asking more questions and you start going all different directions. Um, you know, you had women um, who were from Wilmington who were right across the river um, watching the bombardment and the fighting January 15th, 1865 in what is now today Sunny Point. Um, they're watching that fighting. And for uh, Mrs. Thaddeus Davis, whose husband, Sergeant Davis, is in the 36th fighting at Shepherd's Battery, um, she has no idea if he survives the battle until he comes walking in the the front door in July of 1865 from Elmira Prisoner of War Camp. Um, A lot of these, you know, there's no uh, American Red Cross that's going to send notes saying your husband's been captured, he's good in Prisoner of War Camp. Uh, These Individuals had no idea what was going on. They mm-hmm. had no idea if their husbands had lived, had died. It's now sort of uh, possessed by another side. You just can't go over there and look for your husband at that time. But it's kind of like you could reach out and touch those lights, I imagine, because yes. when you look out, I mean, it's not that far, and especially with that kind of action. I imagine that there was, and that just was, it was, it was. I would imagine tangible. it was pretty scary, and you know, for these these ladies to be wondering if their husbands are going to survive the battle or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and just because they survived the battle doesn't mean they're going to survive the war because for some of these men who were sent to uh, Elmira, they're never going to come home. They're still buried up in Elmira, New York at the prisoner of war camp yeah. that was there. So one thing I definitely want to talk about, and I know this is one thing that you guys at Fort Fisher have been really trying to dig deeper on and find more and, and, and tell this story more of what was the role of African-Americans, both freed and enslaved people at the fort? I mean, it starts with construction, right? Yes. Um, when the fort was originally constructed, they were using the soldiers to build the, uh, the fortifications and these batteries. Well, they needed more help. So the Confederate government instituted a uh, impressment or a conscription of workers to come down to Fort Fisher. And so over the past few years, we've been able to unearth some um, pension records where in the 19 teens and 20s, um, many African-Americans were submitting pension records to the state to be reimbursed for their services to build Fort Fisher. Um, we had always heard that there were a X number of uh, enslaved and freed Africans who were working to build Fort Fisher. We hadn't been able to prove it. So now we're actually starting to build a lot of that story. Um, we're looking into the history of the USCTs that were there at Fort Fisher. Um, one of the medals of honor, one of those 72 medals of honor, is awarded to an African-American uh, earned at Fort Fisher. And so, you know, telling the story of Private Bruce Anderson um, has been fascinating. Um, we actually had his medal of honor on display for quite a number of years. Um, the family has requested it back so it was only on a temporary loan but um, a lot of africans were sent to fort fisher to construct the fort they are sent out there um, and this is not a happy joyful place to go to begin with but then you're sitting there uh, all day long for seven days as long as there's daylight you're, you're building this fortification and this is a massive you know mile and a half long of earthworks um, 25 uh, feet high with another 10 feet for other things. And then you've got about a 40 degree slope. So you've, you're being told how to put this together. You've got wooden timbers going in locations. Uh, this was a pretty rough job to try to build this um, and to try to make this happen. 
and the USCT is the U.S. Colored Troops. Yes, yeah. and and then you've got the uh, on the other side, you've got the United States Colored Troops, the USCTs. About forty percent of the landing forces of uh, the army are made up of these African soldiers that are fighting for their freedom and for the freedom of their people, and they are being sent in here, um, and they are being utilized. They will play a major role after Fort Fisher Falls in the approach north from the Federal Point side or the east side of the Cape Fear River um, to attack Wilmington. Um, they're going to take heavy losses at a battle for Sugarloaf Hill, which most people today have no concept that where that is. And you know that's even before Forks Road, which is there at the Cameron Art Museum. Yeah. And Sugarloaf continues to be a um, recurring feature of this show because it was even part of the show last week when we were yep. talking about Native Americans. And, and speaking about Native Americans, um, they were involved as well. I mean, it, it was it, they had a role in this, too. That's right. And again, as the research, we keep digging deeper and deeper. Um, we're finding that um, not only were uh, free and enslaved Africans impressed to go down to build Fort Fisher, but also... Um, that many of what is today the Lumbee tribe were sent to Fort Fisher to help with the construction. And so you have these varied stories of of what was going on. And we've been able to work with the Lumbee tribe, um, the Museum of the Southeastern Native American in uh, Pembroke, to actually help research these stories and try to get in touch with the families. A lot of these have been oral history. We depend upon documents and things to prove it and so trying to uh, take oral history and find the documentation and being able to prove that these stories were correct is is part of our job and then once we get that we now want to explain to everybody hey this just isn't about the north and the south in a fight here this is about so many people that are here in the southeastern north carolina area um, and what's going on with them you have to imagine you know that Fort Fisher, it seems a little isolated now. You know, you have to go down. Yeah. You don't have to go a little farther. <laughs> you, you know, it's kind of there on the end. But then it was such a big operation. It would have encompassed this whole area. Wilmington was pulled in. You know, all the people, you know, a lot of people are interested about civilian life. But, you know, for the people, African-Americans, Native Americans, you know, the Confederacy, what was life like at this? Uh, the biggest thing about the fort is... Uh, today, if you want to go to the beach, everybody's happy. Um, mm-hmm. If you were 1861 and you got sent to Fort Fisher, that was not really a happy place. It was something that, one, you were going to be working from sunrise to sunset on building the fortification. If you weren't doing that, um, you were going to be scraping the iron and re painting it. You were going to be scraping the wood and trying to make sure that the gun carriages didn't fall apart. You're in a, a caustic sea environment with salt air so everything metal is going to start rusting immediately so you're going to be doing all types of maintenance on a constant basis you are in the middle of summer you've got blisteringly hot sun there's nowhere these these gun chambers are wide open to the sun you're wearing wool uniforms Mm -hmm. Um, you're always wearing a hat but this is sort of what's going on this is not a happy place so most of these guys are struggling. And one of the other things you never think about is the food. For the guys who are down there on garrison duty, their food is coming in by barrels being shipped down there by wagon or by being ferried down there by boat. Uh, Most of this stuff has been sitting around in a wooden barrel for months at best. And so if you think about um, having a very poor diet, doing a lot of exercise, you're going to have to start having a lot of problems. Um, When General Whiting assumes command of the Cape Fear Division um, Department in uh, November of 1862, he does a leadership reconnaissance where he goes to visit all the fortifications in the Cape Fear. Um, He was a soldier pre-Civil War, so when he was out west, one of the biggest problems they had was something you never think about someone on land having, which is scurvy. And so his first reaction is he's seeing these guys suffering so bad with poor nutrition and what's going to happen. Now you're going to start having high blood pressure, hypertension, scurvy-like issues. You're going to have weaknesses, broken bones. Um, He institutes a program to try to improve the health of the men. Um, He gets uh, seeds and, and 
orders the men to have a company garden. So now they can grow their own vegetables, um, which they start at Fort Fisher, and then they start moving out to other locations. Um, he hires laundresses to go down there and actually clean the men's clothing. Something you probably wouldn't ever think about, but you know, if you're wearing the same dirty clothes day in and day out, after a while, your one your clothes are going to fall apart. But two, um, you're living in your own filth. It's not going to be very healthy, and so he really tries to make sure that these guys are being taken care of, and so that they can do their job. Yeah. Um, but that's you. Then you got the mosquito issue and the snakes um, to try to supplement their food. If you weren't fixing their equipment, drilling on your equipment, or just trying to, to get out of the sun. Um, they would send you to the garden to work in the garden, or they would put you on a fishing detail to try to catch fish at the beach, capture turtles, sea turtles, to eat those as well. Um, so, so you try to get as much food as possible, and after a while, you know, they, they started getting tired of all the seafood. They wanted you know, pork and beef and all that kind of stuff, but there wasn't a lot of that to be sent down here. And they didn't even know to be scared of mosquitoes carrying diseases no, at that time. No, they did not. So. And so you had a lot of health issues that were being brought on by the diseases brought on by mosquitoes. And I, I think I even fall victim to this, too, that when you think about forts like that, they're so much defined by the battles around them, those days, sometimes hours, events that really define those sites. But there are people stationed there every day, and especially in the case of Fort Fisher, didn't fall until the end of the war. And so it is inhabited from 1861 to 1865 when it does fall. And even after there's people yeah. there. So there, it's, there's, long... there's uh, African-American troops that are stationed there up until uh, 1868 mm. um, when they are picked up and moved westward and they're taken from infantry and turned into cavalry to yeah. be sent out west. So there, there's constantly something going on at the Fort Fisher area. And it, it only really gets abandoned um, about 1860s, late 1860s, and then just a few years after the last man leaves Fort Fisher, and then you have the government coming in and saying uh, most of the men who were killed were buried there at the site during the battle. And so now in the 1870s, you start having the Wilmington local uh, populace pulling the Confederate soldiers and sending them to Oakdale uh, Cemetery, and then you also have the... Uh, uh, Army personnel pulling up individuals and starting Wilmington National Cemetery with the uh, the dead from the Cape Fear and the Wilmington campaign. So were all the bodies exhumed from Fort Fisher, or is there you know the possibility there's still some out there? Well, there's still a possibility that there might be some. They were still finding bone fragments up until the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole area south of Curry Beach, uh, while it's state and federal property, is really sensitive to. Um, what's there? I mean, we're still finding shell fragments from 155 years ago. We find uh, 50 caliber shell casings from the World War II era uh, when it was reactivated. So there's there's a lot that's still active down there. Uh, just a couple of weeks, or excuse me, a couple of months ago, um, you know, they found a 30-pound parrot shell that had been fired by the U.S. Navy that was still live. So at Curry Beach Pier. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, Bomb Squad came out, blew it up, gave us the fragments. Um, but, you know, there, there's still a lot of that stuff. And part of our job is not only to take care of that site, but is also to protect the population from picking up a souvenir off the ground and taking it home where, you know, it causes an issue. You never think that the remnants of the Civil War could still be out there and still hurt you in that way. I mean, and they're all over the place. I mean, yeah. you you dig around in this area. I mean, there's so much fighting, especially on the east side of the Cape Fear River. Uh, between Fort Fisher and in this location where we're sitting, there's a lot of fighting and a lot of shooting that's going to be happening that's going mm-hmm. on. What is the ultimate downfall of Fort Fisher? You know, it stays strong for so long. It, it weathers one battle, obviously, um, around Christmas, you know, yes. around this time that we're actually recording this episode, and um, and then does fall in the second battle. What is its ultimate downfall? Is it leadership? Is it resources? Or is it just overwhelming might from the Union Army? Well, that's that's like the one million dollar question that we always get asked um i i think the downfall of fort fisher comes from multiple angles multiple places i think you can say yes there's a there's a failure of leadership on uh, the confederate side Um, the first battle was a failure of leadership on the union side on the attackers Um, so i think you can say that while the union 
adjusted their their strategy to capture Fort Fisher, that never really took place on the uh, Confederate side. So I think you have some leadership issues that certainly caused problems. There were actions that could have saved Fisher from falling, but um, um, when Whiting gets wounded, when Lamb gets wounded, you're the the two guys who were really keeping that garrison moving forward were kind of taken out of it, and that that was sort of disheartening for the morale of the defenders. Um, And and a lot of people forget these defenders have never fired a shot in anger. These guys have been on garrison duty for four years. And now all of a sudden you've got, you know, you got about 1900 Confederates facing the full might of, you know, thousands upon thousands of federal troops. And these guys put up a full day's defense after going through a two day bombardment. So I think the soldiers were, were there. I think the problem was is that you had some leadership issues, but the overwhelming superiority of men and materiel from the federal side was just too overwhelming. Uh, it, was, it was bound to crack. And when it finally did, it was, it was late in the day um, when that finally happened. Um, it was just throwing as many people out there. You know, that's one of the reasons why we explain there's 72 Medal of Honor recipients from that fort. That just shows how severe that fighting actually is. That's the fourth highest in United States history for the number of Medal of Honor recipients from one battle. Wow. That's, in, that's incredible. What happened to what was built up, those earthworks, those man-made earthworks? I mean, there's only a few now. What happened to them? Well, there's two things really that happened. Um, the biggest problem was the reason why Fort Fisher was chosen to go where it is. It's the ocean. Um, by the 1920s, the ocean had started rolling in, um, and the land or the sea face had already started to erode away. Uh, part of that was from nature. Some of that was from man-made issues that uh, were created unexpectedly. Um, so that by the late 1920s, the whole entirety of the uh, northeast bastion and much of the sea face was gone. Uh, and then throughout the years from the 1920s into, you know, almost until 1990 when the revetment wall was built, um, the, the sand was just, uh, the fort was eroding. And so that was the one way to protect it. The second thing is between 1940 and 1945, when America was uh, called back to war in World War II, uh, Fort Fisher was reactivated. And so the the reactivation of the fort really did a whole host of damage to the fortification. And so obviously if you go down there today, there's this giant World War II airstrip that goes right through the center of the fort. In 46, there was a huge storm that actually pushed uh, 421 um, that went around the fort. And in uh, the 1940s, late 40s, they built 421 right through the center of the fort right next to the airstrip. Uh-huh. So there's a, there's a number of things. Uh, other items that are kind of missing are the construction in Carolina Beach and Curry Beach. Um, right now, um, Fort Fisher is working with the Federal Point History Society um, and the town of Carolina Beach to preserve what remains of the Sugarloaf Lines on city property. We're helping to turn that into a, uh, a city park. Um, that helps us tell a lot of the story of what those USCTs were going through uh, in January and February before they even made it to Forks Road, all the, the struggle that was going on there. It's just a whole different idea and attitude towards historic preservation, you know. <laughs> Obviously, it was a time of war in the 40s, but, you know, thinking about it now. It was. And, you know, most people would say, oh, they didn't know what they were doing. Actually, they did. Um, There were books, you know, welcome to um, when when a soldier showed up to Camp Davis, which Fort Fisher was the main firing point for. uh, One of the brochures that they were given talked all about Fort Fisher and its history and everything that happened there. So these guys knew exactly what was going on. So when they plowed through that land face to build that fort in that uh, airstrip uh, they, they kind of knew what they had to be doing and i had a gentleman walk in to the fort oh gosh it's about two years ago said that his his grandfather who had been stationed there in early 41 would send home foot lockers filled with artifacts that they would just find lying all over the place that they would just pick it up he'd put it in a he'd find a pistol that had been in the door so in the sand 
finds a sailboard, a bayonet, puts it in lockers, ships it back home. So they had four foot lockers filled with information and just stuff. And it was was very easy to walk around that site, especially between the late 19th century and early 20th century, to walk around that site and find these artifacts just lying all over the place, the pistols, the swords, the bayonets. Um, One gentleman reports even finding um, the packages of... uh, 58 caliber mini balls wrapped in a location. And you could see that they had set them all up so that they could load and fire, that they weren't going to have to open these packages during the heat of the battle. They were just loose all sitting there. A lot of that stuff um, just goes disappearing. You know, once people start picking up items. Yeah. So, so, what happens to Fort Fisher in those years after soldiers leave, but before you know, it's reactivated. I mean, does it sit there? Do people who fought in the war come back? I mean, is it a place of remembrance or is it more of something that's forgotten for years? It, it is a little of both. Um, the first time that the re, uh, a, a reunion is actually occurs is uh, 1875 when Colonel Lamb um, helps be a part of the uh, Fort Fisher Survivors Association. And they, they're actually bringing everything together. Um, and then over time, you find that many of the soldiers will want to come back down to Fort Fisher and they'll walk the grounds. They'll talk about where they were during the battle. Um, by the late 19th century, something really unique happens is that they start inviting Union veterans to come down. And then the Confederate veterans from the Wilmington and the Fort Fisher campaign are invited to go to upstate New York and to all these other locations. And there's a sense of camaraderie to them. So mm-hmm. in 1907, they come back and they walk the grounds of the fort. Um, they had a pen made up called Glory Enough for All. They, they had come to terms with what had happened. Um, and they felt that no matter what side you were on, there was glory for everybody who was at Fort Fisher. And that was what they were there to talk about. Um, and they would walk around the sites. They would walk around the um, each one of the, the gun chambers and talk about where they were at certain times and talk about what they had seen and what they had witnessed. Um, and that'll go on for years up until probably the late 1920s when the last of the uh, these these soldiers start dying off and they're they're too fragile to to go back to the site. Uh, one of the greatest stories is the last time that Colonel Lamb and General Curtis, who had become best friends, uh, Colonel Lamb, the commander of Fort Fisher, uh, General Curtis was the leader of the first brigade attack on Fort Fisher. Um, both of them are wounded severely in the battle. Um, both of them end up in the same hospital. And when General Curtis finds out that Colonel Lamb is in the hospital, he wants to meet him. And so they, he goes down there and they start talking and they build a very fast friendship. And so now Lamb has this person he calls my friend, the enemy, um, who is General Curtis. And so Lamb will travel to upstate New York. He'll become very good friends, not only with Curtis, who's the Medal of Honor recipient, but also Captain William Walling, who is also a Medal of Honor recipient from Fort Fisher. And they will do everything they can. Um, and in 1909, they will try to go to Congress to set up Fort Fisher as a National Parks Historic Landmark. Um, it will never come to fruition, but they really start pushing. And, and a lot of that is based on members of the Wilmington community realizing how important Fort Fisher is to this area. They want to start doing that. They want to get this memorialized. Um, Just falls on deaf ear up in Congress. So what is, you know, 1961, Fort Fisher becomes a state historic site, the first Mm -hmm. state historic site. Um, What is the ultimate legacy of Fort Fisher? I mean, you don't see it represented, you know, you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, Lincoln, when it's mentioned there. But, you know, one thing that I've always loved has been Ken Burns as the Civil War. I listen, I've listened to that soundtrack a lot when I write this show and and it's but it's not mentioned. Nothing is mentioned about it there. So why has Fort Fisher kind of been left off some of these broader, you know, but really hallmark depictions of the Civil War? Well, I think a lot of people, Ken Burns included, wanted to focus in on that big struggle between Lee and Grant, the Virginia mm-hmm. campaign. Um In the late 19th century, if you said you had gone to Fort Fisher and you had survived Fort Fisher and had been at the fighting, 
Um, that would be like someone saying I was in the army and I landed on Omaha beach, June 6th, 1944, um, or being a Marine saying I served with the, in Vietnam at Quezon. It at meant something. Yeah. It, that would, people held you in higher esteem. What really happens is the shift towards this lost cause idea and the big struggle between Lee and Grant. And I think that's part of why this falls on the back burner. Um, there's a lot to this story that most people don't realize. The largest amphibious operation prior to World War II. Um, you're putting the the largest naval bombardment of the Civil War on that fort. Uh, you've got a lot that's going on there that should be something that people should recognize. And, and it's just, it doesn't fit in with the stereotype of what they're trying to portray. And so a lot of it is just... It, it doesn't have the big name stars. You don't hear about Lamb being ready for a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, Curtis doesn't really seem to get ready for a movie. All of these names, they're very famous people. Uh, Alfred Terry, who captures Fort Fisher, will be the last commander that George Custer ever has. In fact, it's mm-hmm. Terry that sends Custers to find out where the Sioux party is and mm-hmm. report back. And um, unfortunately, Custer doesn't do that, but... <laughs> It's his mistake. Um, so, so there's all these big name people that from the 19th century. But once you start focusing in on certain things, and that there's certain criteria that have to be this big dramatic story, um, a lot of these battles, like Fort Fisher, lose their importance. Um, this would be a other than the Lincoln movie, this would make a, an amazing movie of just the struggle of what was going on, the differences of all this stuff. There's so many facets to the Fort Fisher story that can be brought in the blockade runners, the women from Wilmington watching the battle till darkness falls, uh, the African American stories that are here, the, the guys that are here that are just simple farmers who have been here. There's a, uh, while Sergeant, uh, Davis is fighting and he's in his late twenties. Um, one of the gentlemen in his company is in his mid forties was a Mexican American war veteran. Um, he's fighting too. So, so there's a lot of stories. There's a lot of, of personal interest that can be connected to the Fort Fisher story. And I think that's one of the things that we want people to walk away with is that it. It's not just a military conflict that we're trying to explain. We're trying to explain the the human contact. What is this human interest story? This is wars happen because people don't like each other. I mean, if you have a brother or a sister, you never say that your brother's sister is always right 100% of the time. There's times when you start fighting over things. Um, that happens. But it's how do people make those choices to to go and when they're put into extraordinary circumstances, what are those choices that they make? And what you see at Fort Fisher are people being sent into extraordinary circumstances, and they are making choices that are just astounding. Mm -hmm. Um, Bruce Anderson, who I had mentioned before, an African-American recipient of the Medal of Honor, He's running out in front of the whole 1st Battalion, 1st Brigade attack, armed with nothing more than an axe. His job is to open, enlarge the holes in the wooden palisade in front of the fortification. Well, prior to him being given an axe, they were going to give him a sack full of black powder. His job was to run in front of everybody, light the bag, and run away, and hopefully not get killed by this explosion. And 16 guys volunteer for that job because they thought it was important enough to blow holes in that fortification. Um, so these are, these are choices that people make in extraordinary circumstances. And so talking to uh, our visitors, whether they're school kids or, you know, military personnel, or even uh, just normal visitors, we want them to understand that the human element to the Fort Fisher story. It's one thing to talk about you know, the battle that happened and people shooting at each other. And it's another thing to think about what these guys were going through. How did they do this? Yeah. Um, well, in Fort Fisher, it's looked the same as it has since 1961. But you guys are going to be getting this this significant upgrade with the with the visitor center and uh, the museum to really start telling this story um, even better. It sounds. like. Oh yes. Um, what we're trying to do is we're trying to increase the size of the the exhibit space by almost three times. Mm-hmm. So literally, you'll be able to come in. You'll have more information. 
um, about the battle. We'll have more of the, the military history for those individuals who are looking for the military history. But we're also going to be able to tell the stories that are not at the site currently right now, except in wayside panels. Um, those stories that focus in on the African-American experience at Fort Fisher, the Native American experience at Fort Fisher. That's something most people don't realize. And then, you know, what's going on with the women? So we've got a lot of women's stories that happen there. Yeah. Uh, coming up in February, we have an, a temporary exhibit opening up on the African-American experience. So we can actually highlight some of the research that we're working on to get ready for this brand new building. Absolutely. Um, and hopefully when the new building goes in, uh, at some point they're raising money to try to rebuild the fortification across the airstrip. So when you would go up uh, to look out the window on the second floor of our new museum, you would literally see what the fort looked like from the road all the way to the river as it would have looked in, say, December of 1864, before the first attack occurred. Yeah, so that's something, that's that's incredible to look forward to, because that's going to help, I think, people visualize just kind of, you know, it won't be the full fort, but it'll help people visualize the substantial nature of just what was out there. Oh, yeah, and, and you know, when you consider how much is there and how much is not there, it's it just is amazing to think about how massive this fortification would have looked like. It was the largest earthwork fortification in the Confederacy mm -hmm. uh, by December of 1864. I don't think it ever was completed. I mm -hmm. think they were continuously working on making it as strong as possible. Mm -hmm. so. Well, if you can't wait and you know that will be a lot that will be several years out but um i would encourage everyone to go visit fort fisher it's open every week um you know there's specific times it's not tuesday, open on tuesday Monday. yeah tuesday through saturdays tuesday from through saturday. 9 a.m to 5 p.m and um in january january 18th and 19th will be the 155th anniversary event which will include a huge reenactment correct? yes we have uh this is the every five years we do a uh, battle tactical where we actually show what this would have looked like with the attack on shepherd's battery the existing fortification um, we have right now about somewhere between four to five hundred reenactors coming in we'll have cannons we'll have the uh, union and confederate troops we'll have living history demonstrations and speakers to explain what was going on um, this will go on for two days so it's a saturday and sunday it is and yes. so um, the battle tactical is is really unique to actually be able to see and so um, if you come down to fort fisher for the 18th or 19th make sure you get down there early because uh, traffic is, is hard to get through there. So. Yes. They didn't have to worry about traffic in, uh, in 1865. <laughs> no. Well, we had, we had about the, those many people, uh, during the one fiftieth at Fort Fisher as we had during the 1865 attack. So it wow. was, it was pretty crowded with people. So I can't imagine what it would have been like 155 years ago. A lot of visuals for people yes, <laughs> crowds in, so. crowds in seeing the actual battle. Um, right. well, yes, I would encourage everyone to go out there. I will be out there. Kate Fierners is going to be out there. Um, so that is a way to kind of see the other element of this story that, that we told in this episode. John, thank you so much for being here. I've been looking forward to doing this episode, and um, this was a great conversation. Well, thank you very much. I look forward to maybe being back at some yes, point. Yes, we're going to hopefully do an episode, and we're definitely going to do an episode on the whole second life of Fort Fisher during World War II. And so. that is just as fascinating as what happened during the Civil War. Absolutely. So uh, you'll have to stay tuned for that, and John will be back, and uh, we have a whole other story to tell. So thanks, John. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed and our look at the legacy of Fort Fisher. Thank you so much for joining me. Once again, you can visit Fort Fisher State Historic Site Tuesday through Thursday each week. As a reminder, we will now be debuting new episodes of the podcast every two weeks throughout 2020. So be sure to check back in then for the next chapter from our local history book. Until our next episode, please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group, where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories from the region's history. In that group, I post extra content for each episode. And this week, I'm going to be sharing a whole bunch of pictures and sketches published of Fort Fisher during and after the Civil War that shows its size and scale. You can find that group by searching Kate Fear Unearthed on Facebook. 
If you have any episode ideas or questions about the show, feel free to email me directly at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. And don't forget to sign up for the Cape Fear Unearthed newsletter that goes out every Thursday. In it, I'll include links to all of our new episodes and any supplemental pictures or videos that I uncover in my research, all delivered right to your inbox. You can sign up for that newsletter at starnewsonline.com newsletters. As always, you can also get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Kate Fear on Earth was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing for the show is done by Adam Fish. This podcast was made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear Unearthed by subscribing to the Star News today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until next time, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. You never know what you might unearth.